0: the financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode.
1: Hello, everyone. I am Baba Abbasadeh, CEO of Toronto Centre. Welcome to the executive panel on addressing greenwashing in financial services, a conversation we've been looking forward to have for a very long time. Since our establishment in 1998, we have trained more than 20,000 financial supervisors from 190 countries and territories to become change agents for building more stable and inclusive financial systems. I would like to thank our key sponsors, Global Affairs Canada, the Swedish CETA, and the IMF. In 2016, we began incorporating climate-related risks in our training programs because of the substantial implications to global financial stability we are pleased to be a capacity building partner of the network for greening the financial system greenwashing distorts information that investors might require in order to make informed investment decisions for example let's be honest despite the popularity of esg investing how much do you and i really know about the climate impact of the companies in which we invest for our retirement or for our children's education. Greenwashing erodes investor confidence in the market for sustainability-related products, deprives developing countries of blended finance investments for sustainable infrastructure, and poses a threat to a fair and efficient financial system. There's much work underway to develop and enforce consistent international standards and practices across the industry. Standard setters and financial supervisors are key stakeholders and must continue to work together to avoid greenwashing when industry promotes sustainability-related products. Today, our distinguished panelists will discuss how to address these challenges. They are our good friend, Martin Maloney, Secretary General of IOSCO, Michael Jansi, member of the International Sustainability Standards Board, Carol Paradine, Chief Executive Officer of the Canadian Public Accountability Board, Andres, uh, Andres Vinelli, Chief Economist of the CFA Institute. And our moderator is Bill Cohen, Chair of the IFRS Advisory Council, and lucky for us, a Toronto Centre board member. I would like to thank Toronto Center's team for working hard in organizing this webinar. You have received the bios of our
2: speakers and, and moderator. Let's begin. Bill, over to you. Thank you, Babak, and thank you for asking me to moderate this session. Um, I I come at green finance and green um, greenwashing from from different perspectives. My role in um, my former role as Secretary General of the Basel Committee, this this was a sort of unfinished business. When I left Basel, we were working. You know, we were thinking about climate risk. But let's face it, the biggest uh, and and Babak, you pointed to this. One of the biggest um problems right now is lack of data, lack of taxonomy um so so you know coming from it uh, different perspectives, it was my regulatory background but also um since i've uh, i've semi retired um uh, I'm on the board of a um, global systemically important bank and i I know firsthand the importance of um disclosure um reporting from the bank's perspective I do work for a, um, a Japanese global systemically important bank as well. And similarly, uh, this occupies quite a bit of time uh, in the boardroom. And uh, Babak, like, as you mentioned, uh, I also chair the advisory council for the IFRS Foundation. Uh, I've been really, it's almost startling how quickly uh, progress has been made in, in establishing the International Sustainability Standards Board, but, but actually producing work. and. Uh, that that's a good segue into um michael if i uh, if I could start with you, um, this is the progress of the uh, ISSB really has been um, has been extraordinary. Uh, I know firsthand from a, a regulatory's perspective, a regulator's perspective um how difficult it is to to move things along in an expeditious way, um but at the same time, you know you you want to produce the highest quality standard as possible. Uh, so the ISSB, it's, it's, it's a, a new organization, an infant uh, organization. Um, let me ask you about the recent work of the ISSB. So you produced uh, two two exposure drafts on general sustainability, climate-related disclosures. Let me ask you this, how exactly will those two standards um, help address greenwashing in financial services?
3: Well, thank you, Bill. And- thank you for those kind comments um it's the staff that deserves the credit for the pace that we've been been on but i mean maybe it obviously with the issb the international sustainability standards board is focused on sustainability disclosures for companies and certainly there are greenwashing charges or concerns out there in regards to company disclosure but the topic is broader than that and i know that we're going to get into some of those things a little bit later on through the panel but I mean, maybe the the sort of flippant thing to say is that we're focused on transparency and transparency. um, The greater transparency uh, there is, um, I think the less opportunity there is for for stakeholders to level charges of greenwashing. But let me get into something you said a little bit, because you referenced something that's absolutely true. The ISSB is a new organization. But I think it's really important for um, the attendees to recognize we are part of the IFRS Foundation family. And that's been really important, um, not only in the pace, but the quality of what we've been able to achieve thus far, because obviously we are now within a foundation that has such strong governance, uh, the due process oversight, We've been able to leverage and obviously the, the the relationships that the ifrs foundation brings to the capital markets are really very powerful and obviously the reporting uh, on the financial reporting side ifrs standards are used in more than 140 countries so that's important because the foundation the ifrs foundation has tremendous credibility and trust across the capital markets and we're able to leverage that and I think obviously, from I guess from my perspective, one of the catalysts for greenwashing is this, is this idea of mistrust. The stakeholders simply don't trust certain actors in the capital markets to, to do what it is they would like them to do. So ISSB being able to leverage that, I mean, new but immediate credibility and that trust in the market has been really powerful for us. So I think that's one of the things that's allowed us or will allow us to address some of the greenwashing concerns but i think the other the other aspect of this is that you know i think greenwashing from my perspective is often a result of a mismatch in expectations on the one hand you've got stakeholders that expect something of companies in this in this case and and you know the companies are simply not delivering up to those expectations and the challenge is for companies they have a range of stakeholders who have a range of of demands or expectations So we're not gonna be able to address that entire spectrum at ISSB because our focus is creating high quality globally aligned standards that are focused on our primary user base, investors, lenders, and other creditors. So that single materiality perspective, but by bringing globally aligned, high quality comparable standards, we really do believe that we're gonna be able to address that gap between the expectations of the market uh, has of us and what the company is going to deliver. And uh, by narrowing that gap, again, I think we're addressing um, greenwashing. And we can get more into this to the extent people would like, but you know, we are very focused on establishing that global baseline um, so that jurisdictions can take the ISSB standards, they can build around it uh, in a way that uh, they need to for their jurisdictions, but that global baseline of comparable high quality disclosure standards is really key uh, for us and again I think it addresses some of the challenges around greenwashing. We have a great deal of focus on interoperability here. I think one of the problems too that's led to some of the charges of greenwashing is that we've had this alphabet soup of largely voluntary disclosures out there and that is confusing for the market you know companies are disclosing to different standards in different ways and different formats and when there's confusion and complexity and costs in the market that leads itself to confusion it leads to charges of greenwashing so so the fact that we're bringing this alignment and working very hard to do that i think is important and last but not least I would argue that today sustainability disclosure is not a nice to have anymore for capital markets. This is a need to have. Investors, you know, lenders and other creditors need sustainability data to inform their decisions, to position them for success over the long term. And so the old you know, style of voluntary disclosures no longer fit for purpose. And so I think maybe the greatest contribution that we can make with our partners is the fact that we are creating standards that will be auditable, assurable, and our expectation is they will become regulated and mandated. So the fact that we will be putting standards in the market that we would expect to be regulated and mandated, I think, is taking it to the next level. And maybe more than anything else, we hope that that's going to really begin to address in a significant way the charges of greenwashing that have been leveled, Uh, to a certain extent in regards to the corporate disclosure on sustainability risks and opportunities.
2: Thank you, Michael. You mentioned um, capital markets, the the need to do this on a global basis, um, the mismatch of expectations. So this this naturally leads me um, to the work of IOSCO. Um, Martin, when I was um, with the Basel Committee, I interacted regularly with IOSCO and the IAIS. Um, I I know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know firsthand how difficult it is um, for an organization like the Basel Committee, which is smaller is, in terms of membership, a lot smaller than IOSCO, and I, I fully understand the difficulty it is to get something done on a global basis. As Michael explained <clears throat> and put very nicely, this is a global issue that needs, it, it absolutely has to get done on a on a global basis. Um, can you say a few words about um, IOSCO? I mean, I, I've been impressed by the work of IOSCO in supporting uh, the transition to a more sustainable uh, economy in, in the capital markets. Um, can you elaborate on some of these efforts? You, um, Martin, yeah, you've, you've got your mute on. I you- just muted. <laughs> uh, um, yes, thank you for the question, uh,
4: uh, uh, Um I, I wanted to pick up very much in a way where Michael left off, because if you look at what he's saying as just correct, you can you can see that from our point of view, working very closely with the IFRS Foundation was a key part of trying to stimulate and support progress on the on the reporting standards. And we're also engaged very actively with IESBA and the IASB to try to put one of the other help put one of the other blocks in place so that you can get proper auditing and assurance uh, to high ethical standards. Uh, and, and none of that is trivial or easy, and all of it is going to take time. When you were at the Basel Committee, I you you well knew the. The long lead in time for 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 uh, regulatory developments, they can take years we're doing this one really fast, but it's still taking years and that leaves us all with this greenwashing problem in the interim. So we've tried to adopt a long term and a short term approach long term support the sorting out of reporting standards, as we've just been discussing. But short term, we had to come up with something we could do that would be helpful to try to get standards up in the marketplace and get away from greenwashing, even when we don't have the proper information and the well audited information that we that we need. And we've done this by firstly drawing attention to the problem and to the details of the problem. We published a couple of reports which set out in detail how asset managers can fall into greenwashing and how esg rating agencies can fall into into greenwashing and that's really critical uh, to deal with something I'll, I'll mention in in a moment which is i think the industry's misunderstanding sometimes of what it's doing when it's talking to itself about greenwashing and i'll come back i'll come back to that if i, if I have time in in a second but after the publication of those two reports we then we thought how are we going to get the industry to move forward and do better in relation to greenwashing than it's been doing. And we came up with the idea, which is a bit of an innovation for us of a call to action to industry representative bodies, to self regulatory organizations, to standard setters in the private sector, to generally stimulate debate and uh, reflection within the industry on on why they were falling into this trap and why they were falling into greenwashing when very often it wasn't uh, intentional. And we're following that up with work this year with our uh, industry committee, the AMCC, where we're doing work with them to to promote awareness among their members. But there's another string to this bow as well, which we're going to be drawing global attention to a bit later in the year, which is an awful lot of the regulators around the world have started inspections programs and enforcement programs to actually start challenging this at the the front end and we're strongly supportive of, of that. And the point I wanted to say about industry was brought out uh, well, I think in a, in a panel I was on recently where an industry member objected to the use of the term greenwashing for a lot of what's happening, saying it's it, this is not intentional and it's not all our fault. So it's not fair to call it greenwashing. And, I'm, and, and I think that's not really right because if you look at this from the investor's point of view, and I think Michael already uh, uh, alluded to this, it's, it's, it, 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 there is a mismatch of expectations and it, there is a problem of, uh, of trust that has emerged, which is why we got involved in this in the first place, because it almost, you know, this is not a criminal court of law. It's not about proving intentionality. It's about observing low quality output. And we've seen low quality output put in terms of ratings and we've seen low quality output in terms of the selection of portfolios for investors. And how that happens within the firm is somewhat secondary, interesting, of course, but somewhat secondary to the fundamental problem investors face in the market if the quality of the materials and services they're getting is low. And for me, that's what I mean about greenwashing. And very often the debate we have to have with industry is about getting them to accept responsibility for that large area of activity, which is in between, on the one hand, intentional deceit. And on the other hand, getting it right. But in between those two, you've got a large spectrum of possible activities where you end up getting it wrong for a wide variety of reasons. And in my book, that's all greenwashing.
0: Yeah.
2: Thanks, Martin. Um, Carol, I'm, I'm going to move to you next because we, we heard from Michael um, and Martin has echoed um, topics like assurance and auditability. Um, Carol is the head of the Canadian Public Accountability Board. Um, so you're responsible for o- overseeing public accounting firms that um, that audit Canadian reporting issuers. Um, tell us a bit about CPAB's role on ESG and fraud, and, and how do you see greenwashing uh, in that regard?
0: Yes, thank you. Fascinating discussion so far, and I think it links in a lot um, between the discussion and fraud that we've had for a number of years. Um, By way of background, the Canadian Public Accountability Board had its 20th anniversary this Saturday. Um, We were established as a Canadian response to significant U.S. business and audit failures, most notably Enron and WorldCom. And there was a desire to prevent such a situation in Canada. And create an audit oversight body that is independent of account of the accounting profession. So we're recognizing Canadian Securities Regulation and our regulatory mandate currently encompasses oversight of uh, audited financial statements of Canadian public publicly traded companies. And um, so related to this topic, we've published two thematic reviews on fraud recently and also one which is a climate thematic review. What we haven't done yet is a thematic review that involves both fraud and climate. Um, So as we think about our current role, as it is related to ESG uh, more broadly, um, three areas of involvement that I wanted to highlight, um, we wanna walk lockstep and consider assurance as the various disclosure, the various accounting um, implications and standards are being developed. I, along with Michael, were part of the Canadian Independent Review Committee on Canadian Standard Setting. And I've engaged with a large number of audit committee chairs on discussions. Uh, Some of them are quite energetic, of course. Uh, For example, the debate that you get in Alberta, Canada, which is the center of our energy sector. And aside from some of those sometimes somewhat political debates about the impact of these disclosures of the discussion, the audit committee chairs have been the discussions very much around processes and controls. Uh, attestation, which committee within an audit, uh, within a board, takes responsibility for these types of disclosures, and definitely around greenwashing. And one audit committee chair in Alberta said to me uh, last week our competitors could make up anything. So if you think about processes and controls, um, a significant amount of the information which is currently disclosed is sourced from non-financial systems and other areas which may not be subject to a robust or a sophisticated set of internal controls. Reporting issuers also need to be thinking about, and as an area of discussion, um, when they involve specialists and to ensure that the information that they disclose is accurate and not misleading. So that um, question that both of the other speakers already touched on is greenwashing fraud, and I'm sure there's a number of perspectives out there. And I, by the way, tend to be a very decisive person, um, but I, my reaction tends to range from um, yes to maybe, and it depends. And part of this lack of a clear answer is that fraud is typically elucidated within a legal framework. And when greenwashing is intentional manipulation of information to change the behaviors of investors, consumers or others um, that use or rely on that information, in my view, that fits the standard definition of a fraud. Um, However, there are a lot of leveling of charges of greenwashing that may not really be fraud. So is it painting too rosy a picture? Is that fraud? Um, Or highlighting the positive but not the negative? And as public appetite for sustainability reporting increases, um, and and this has more prominence, there's increased pressures, of course, on companies to disclose the information in a fair and transparent manner. Um, And in cases where firms are intentionally overstating their green initiatives um, or their commitments to a net zero plan or deceiving investors, then to me, greenwashing would definitely be considered to be fraud. Um, However, there's also a risk of companies knowingly disclosing inaccurate information. So that's unintentional um, because of the systems and processes around gathering that information, or that the information is more aspirational in nature, um, which could be quite high when you're looking at this new sort of emerging disclosures in this area. And of course, there's significant demand by investors and others. Uh, So to me, this highlights um, why we need clear consistent standards, why we need verification, and why we need regulation. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Carol. Uh, last but not least, uh Andres, so we've heard so far um you know the difficulties with the newness of everything. There, there are no uh global standards. There will there will be soon. Um, there's not there's not consistent data, there's not high quality data. Um, you know, Carol just mentioned the importance of, of uh, processes and controls. So all of this is uh, is new for for preparers, for risk managers, for regulators. Um, but this this plays perfectly into the remit of the CFA um, in in providing an education for financial professionals. Um, so I'd like to hear from you, uh, Andres. How does the CFA Institute uh, address this challenge of greenwashing? I know um the CFA Institute recently released its uh, ESG disclosure standards um how do this so how could those standards help address the greenwashing issue in financial services
5: well bonjour buen dia I'm delighted to be here this morning uh we at CFA Institute are doing several things uh in this area as you mentioned Bill we have the voluntary disclosure standards but we also to quite a bit of training and research and policy engagement. Um, Now, the purpose of the global ESG disclosure standards for investment products is to facilitate uh, fair representation, fair representation and full disclosure of investment products, consideration of ESG issues in general and climate in in particular. Um, Now, um, when those products are fairly represented and fully disclosed, Uh, investors, consultants, advisors, distributors can better understand, evaluate, and compare investment products. Um, So the potential for greenwashing greatly uh, diminishes. Um, And we offer uh, a number of tools and resources that anyone can find um, online to streamline implementation. But um, a crucial um, aspect of this conversation, I think, is the issue of human capital that uh, that truly understands and can be helpful in this matter. So um, what we do is we also train uh, practitioners. We have a, an ESG certificate, a course on climate investing, and the newly revamped CFA curriculum gets more and more into this uh, topic. Um, so over time, we think that we are raising the bar, but uh, you know, as smart, Marty said, many of these things take a lot of time. One other thing that we're doing, um, um, Bill, is to um, do actual research on greenwashing. And I'm hoping that by the end of um, May, probably by, by early June, we will have some research out where we went out and analyzed uh some investment products out there available to uh to to regular public and uh we found that for instance in north america about 50 percent of products are have some type of uh, greenwashing going on and um a lot of this as carol rightly pointed out is not necessarily fraud but i like the, the the framing that marty gave which was low quality output regardless of Uh, intention perhaps, but there's a lot of that um, going out there, Um, so we want to be able to point out to those instances, but also uh, we want to have a a, a contributing role, so we're working with PRI and GSIA uh, to harmonize um, some of the ESG terminology, because part of it is the alphabet soup uh, problem not only of organizations, but but words that we use to describe different approaches to sustainable uh, investment. And finally, I have to say, public policy has a great role here. So we are um, we don't want that you know we want to make sure that uh, voluntary activities do not in any way crowd out the important role for policymaker and for regulation in this area. So we are working actively with uh, policymakers and regulators through diversity of processes just to uh, push the envelope in this area which is very very important for investors thank you
2: thanks andres I mean, this is certainly one of those areas that um, you know people talk about private public um initiatives and uh, you know this is certainly one of those areas that um it, it does require input from the regulators um, certainly, there's a, a private sector um, effort that needs to be made here. your your um that statistic you quoted the fifty percent um, of fifty percent greenwashing at first it, it, somewhat startling. but then I think of some of the organizations with which I'm involved, there's just of all the um, financial services um, firms I speak with, both on the banking side and the insurance side, I have not yet come across one firm that has said to me, you know what, we think we do the best when it comes to sustainability reporting um, and green finance. I, I haven't come across a firm that says, we are the leaders. Everyone asks me, what are the other guys doing? Um, are we behind? Where do we need to catch up? So um, th- there really is a, a, a massive effort required in both uh, public sector side and private side and 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 Michael if I can if I can turn back to you in this you know in this vein um with my work uh, for the IFRS Advisory Council, our agenda, the agenda for the group I chair that's been dominated by um, the work of the ISSB and progress has been as I mentioned before, progress has been remarkable um, in, in the very short time that the ISSB has been um has been established um you're about to well you've announced recently that um you'll be finalizing the corporate sustainability reporting standards how directly michael how do those reporting standards directly contribute to the conversation that we've had uh so far today
3: well maybe i'll just highlight three things uh quickly and one we don't do this alone. I mean, the ISSB isn't on an island. So we've heard a lot about the connectivity and interrelationships. And it's it's how they work together to, to address these issues. Um, but connectivity is an important concept, more than a concept. It's a practice. It informs a lot of the conversations around the ISSB. And I think we're uniquely positioned Uh, to connect sustainability disclosures with financial disclosures i think we have the the opportunity to do that for the first time and again that brings a rigor it brings it brings a a a disciplined approach to to reporting that we haven't had before but i want to use connectivity in a slightly different different way here too and i do think that the standards will have some knock-on effects positive knock-on effects and i just want to point to something you said martin because I should caveat this by saying, in a former life, I was the founder and CEO of one of the leading global ESG ratings firms, and you know, in that position, I was grateful for the work that that IOSCO did in regards to you know highlighting some of the challenges that ESG ratings firms have and some of the challenges in the market. Um, I believe um, that you know the disclosure standards on the ISSB S1 and S2 is going to help alleviate. Some of those challenges on the on the ESG rating side, uh, because to be quite honest, the analogy I would use is that you know ESG rating firms have done I'll say a good job in getting the information that is out there, but they they would be operating. I mean, the analogy would be financial analysts, sell side buy side analysts trying to do their job without IFRS reporting standards. I mean, it it's that that would be the analogy. So having the sustainability standards from ISB, S1 and S2, I think is gonna help address greenwashing across the capital markets spectrum. But the other thing is, and I wanna pick up on, I mean, again, this is IOSCO, it's Toronto Centre, it's a CFA. Uh, I think one of the biggest contributions that ISSB can can make to this, to this area alongside partners is, we're not just bringing standards out, we're committed to capacity building and education, which again, all of, all of your organizations are, are adept at and so involved at. Because in my experience, um, stakeholders that criticize something, whether it's informed, uh, more informed or less informed, often feel like they're on the outside and i think if you can begin to educate if you can begin to empower if you bring your stakeholders along on the journey uh, i think that's really an important element um, uh, in in you know bringing a practical lens and standpoint to these conversations because as all of us have mentioned this is not something that's going to happen overnight we're not going to address these challenges overnight it's a long-term process and it's too complex, it's too challenging for any one organization. So working together, bringing people inside the tent to the extent possible to be part of the solution, I think is a really critical element, um, again, of addressing the concerns we're talking about here today.
2: Well put, Michael. I I could not agree more. The, uh, the, The training, Needs the capacity building requirements. Um, that's that's one of the reasons why um, I, I feel so strongly about the work of the Toronto Centre, the work that they do in that regard. And something like uh, greenwashing and sustainability. Um, it's just there's such a nap knowledge gap. Um, well, let me let me turn to you. Something that Michael um, mentioned. Um, so. We're about to um, see, and I I think Michael, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, another couple of months, the uh, publication of the finalized standards. Um, How is this going to, from an IOSCO perspective, how is it going to um, help member organizations or maybe, what are some of the challenges that still exist? Um, or, Or are there other things that IOSCO is doing in this space to help keep a check on on greenwashing yeah
4: Um i'm i often say to people uh, if sometimes they get asked you know what's the um, um what would be the sign of success in this work that we're doing in order to get new corporate reporting standards and the answer i give is the real sign of success would be the development of a specialised sector feeding off our work uh, uh, and the ISSB standards and and uh, and the related uh, um, assurance certificates that will be out there. And it's exactly to Michael's point: you need analysts in the market who look at this stuff. You need companies to be able to outsource data collection for their own disclosures. You need costs therefore to be capable of being controlled, and. And once you start listing out all the different things you need for this to work and the different uh, uh, activities that are needed for this to work well, by analogy with financial information, you very quickly see that we're facing a massive skills gap uh, uh, shortage in this whole area. It's it's intense. It's It's in the auditing firms, it's in the accounting firms, it's in the regulators, it's in the asset managers, it's in the rating agencies, it's everywhere. And you then look at the uh, the training programs that are available and the career paths that are available. They're getting better, but they're not great. Uh, It's 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 a tough thing to develop, and that really will be the key to success. So we have picked on one little aspect of that, but what we think is a crucial aspect of that, which is to work really closely with our members who are themselves key advisors to governments in all the different jurisdictions as to what they should do in the face of the ISSB standards. So what we've done is to, we've run the already run the first instance of this last September. We're running this program again in, in, in May in Kuala Lumpur, which is a program for our members to sort of ask the key questions about what does it mean to bring in a, a, a ISSB-style reporting standards? Are you gonna do it compulsorily, voluntary, some sort of transition structures? Who is the regulator going to be? If it's if it's only going to be listed companies, maybe you want to use the stock exchange as the regulator. If it's gonna be mandatory and, and economy-wide, obviously it's more likely to be the regulator who's our member and, and so on. And you get questions like that. And there's also a lot of questions specific to emerging markets that they've got to think about, which is they've particularly got to think about cross-border uh, uh, capital connection issues, which are really crucial for a lot of emerging markets and understanding the answer to what, what what I think is one of the most important questions is, where do you want to situate yourself? Do you want first mover advantage? Do you want to wait until it's become a mature model that you can then just adopt because you're afraid you don't have the resources domestically to build it yourself? Or do you want to position yourself somewhere in between? And that often for emerging markets relates to their Overall framework of ambition in relation to building capital markets, and we plug our program relating to the ISSB standards into that wider program of work we do with them to help them to think about how they want to build their capital markets and what their level of ambition is.
2: Thanks, Martin. This is this is a a, a critical point. So it's one thing to develop a, um, a global standard, but it's quite another to uh, implement it, adopt it uh, at the national level. And then, even at the national level, there are special considerations for you. You, you know, you mentioned uh, emerging markets, but there are others. And, and again, this points to the uh, the knowledge gap um, and, and the difficulty of of getting these standards in place and, and in practice. Um, oh, and by the way, we I'm conscious of time. I uh, do. We've got a a good size. Um, Participation in in today's webinar. I'd like to leave a few minutes at the end uh, to hear some questions uh, from from our guests. Um, But before I do, I Carol, I do have another question for you. Um, On this theme of, you know, this this information gap, this knowledge gap, I I know CPAB has um, recently conducted a a climate thematic review. Can you share the results of that review? what was that about? What were some of the highlights?
0: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, so it was our review was focused on understanding how uh, financial statement auditors are evaluating the impact of climate-related risks in their financial statement audits. So we looked at 66 audit files um, that were already part of our um, selection for inspection and in our regular regulatory work, and it was across a variety of industries and included in that was interviews with the big four Canadian audit firms, um, and for those within the firms that were responsible for the delivery of training and guidance in this area. And really what we wanted to do was get a sense of the current state of um, climate matters, how it was assessed in regular financial statement audits now using existing um, standards. So, you know, for example, where that would be of particular relevance are things like asset impairments, how that's impacted by climate change. Asset retirement obligations always has had an implication in it, uh, risk disclosures, going concern assessments. So our observation, very high level from this thematic review, was each of the four largest firms in Canada had specific guidance and training material uh, to support the auditors in considering the impact of uh, climate-related risk. The quality of the resources did vary um, across the firms, Uh, there was a range of guidance of training um, available, uh, but in many cases the firms, and this was 2022, were in early stages of developing their approach. In most of the files that we inspected, we noted no change to the audit approach to respond to the climate-related risks. So they had guidance and some level of training. It wasn't showing up yet in the audit files, in most of the files. Um, And when they were being considered, when the climate-related risks were being considered by auditors as part of their assessment, the extent and the quality of the work um, of how that was brought into the audit were actually varied significantly. So what we've done with this is we've met with the firms, we've provide them individualized feedback and encouraging them to proactively prepare their teams to consider and address climate related risks in the audits and increase their level of monitoring of how the work is being performed in this area.
2: Interesting, uh, Carol, thank you. Um, there are so many players in this space and um, as a as a former regulator, um sometimes people are surprised to hear me say that um a private sector solution is often the uh, best solution not in this case though I, I i do think that this is a case where we we do have to um have a uh, maybe some momentum that's uh, started by the by the official sector regulators standard setters um auditors uh, well uh, audit uh, overseers shall i say um andres before I open it up to to um, our audience, I, I do have a final uh, final question for you. So, on this panel, you've got the unique perspective of uh, you know got Michael Martin and Carol, who are uh, I guess you could say you know that 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 group of uh, the official sector. Um, from your perspective, what do you what would you um, what would you ask of the official sector, policymakers, standard setters? uh, regulators, supervisory authorities, um, what's needed from the official sector to address greenwashing practices in the financial sector?
5: Well, Bill, um, first I want to say that we, I feel that we're at the beginning of a virtuous cycle and that we are on the right track in the sense that we are actually addressing these emerging risks and opportunities. Um, the question is then how do we keep the momentum? Um, And and I feel there's two things that we can do, and we're collectively, I think, on on the process, but we need to really focus. The first one is increasing the rigor of what we're doing, and the second one to be more general in both the language that we use, uh, rigor and generality, um, also in the standards, and and hopefully in, in, in a way that is harmonized around the world, because this is a global problem. We all think that our... Jurisdictions are somehow special Uh, in this issue. I don't think they are uh, most times. Um, So what does it mean to be more rigorous in this and more general? uh, Exactly. So I would say in two two ways on the issuer side, uh, of course, we want clear disclosures. Um, So three things, right? Science based, harmonized around the world and with assurance building. I feel strongly about this. I'm a former assurance regulator. Um, and if a uh, CEO is out there talking a good game, I want to make sure, as, I, as Carol uh, was mentioning, that the right assets are are impaired. They have to be impaired in order to have some uh, correspondence between wards, disclosures, and, and financial uh, disclosures in particular. Um, Are the uh, amortization schedules uh, adjusting to that uh, reality that that management is is actively talking about? Those kinds of questions. So how about generality? I would say generality, not only in terms of comparing standards across countries and continents, I guess, uh, these days, uh, but also including across different asset classes. And this is not just equities and and fixed income, but also uh, private, investments. I mean, we we live in a world where a lot of uh, money is being allocated to private a- assets. We want to make sure that private equity, venture capital, private credit, uh, hedge funds, they're also engaged in this process. So there's a level playing field for all asset uh, classes. So I think that, that we need to elevate that, that conversation. Um, now on the Financial intermediaries uh, section we care so much uh, about. Um, I think that there's a need to be very clear about how firms incorporate risks and opportunities in in the investment process. Um, We have um, the mandate. Basically, if they have a mandate in this area, they have to be absolutely clear on how that translates into their investment process this is something that is not always um, happening uh, out there and there has to be absolute uh, transparency in reporting uh, not only of financial returns and rest, um, standards talk all about that but also are there other relevant measures that are non pecuniary right that uh, about outcomes we want uh, enhanced disclosure in that area so investors can allocate uh, capital as they as they please um all of this will uh, will help uh, because the industry will build better databases. The auditors will be able to press for better disclosures. Analysts will sharpen the questions about greenwashing uh, in their conference calls. Science will improve. Then the regulators, for instance, banking regulators, will have better data to put into their models so they can assess whether this is a uh, Material risk or not, are there systemic implications? And at the end of the day, this will help shrink the gap between hype and actual reality out there.
2: Excellent, Andres. Thank you very much. Um, okay, uh, my my fellow panelists, uh, we've got a bunch of really good questions. Um, let me pick some of these. And I'm afraid with 15 minutes left, we, we may not be able to answer all of them, but uh, we will endeavor to to answer them uh, in writing, the ones that we can get to. First one, for uh, me, is a, a really important one. And this is, you know, it's it's the the conundrum of um, of a standard setting body. We want to, particularly on an important topic, um, like greenwashing and, and, and sustainability, Want to develop a standard uh, as quickly as possible, yet at the same time, you know, you know, you have to do it in a high-quality way and in a transparent, inclusive way. Capture all the views of of the very many stakeholders. Um, Michael, I'm going to direct this question to you, but um, I, I invite Martin, Carol, and Andres to to weigh in if uh, if they wish. This is a so this is a question about coordination. Um, Arvind Bakel writes, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, SASB, had a head start on sustainability standards. How has the ISSB coordinated its work with SASB so that there's congruence with international and US standards? I mean, at the the end of the day, once the standards are um, are published or finalized, the the goal is as wide of adoption as possible. And so there's got to be buy-in from, from all the different stakeholders. Um, Michael, what do you think about uh, the coordination with SASB? Well,
3: I think it's a great thing. And in fact, for the ISSB, part of the reason we were able to go at a, at a good pace is because we didn't start from scratch. Um, we were leveraging the good work of other uh, you know, standards and, and so on that have been out there for a long time at a great deal of credibility, including SASB. So in fact, and I say this as a proud former board director of SASB, which then became the Value Reporting Foundation, Uh, SASB and the industry, the SASB standards are now part of the IFRS Foundation family. So the IFRS Foundation or the ISSB acquired the Value Reporting Foundation, which was not only the SASB standards, but the integrated reporting and integrated thinking side as well also acquired the the climate disclosure standards board so this was part of the effort on behalf of the foundation and the issb not to contribute to more alphabet soup or this greater hodgepodge which was the beginning of the alignment so you know the task force on climate related financial disclosures a central component of our uh of our standards both s2 which is climate climate first, but not climate only. It's also an integral part of S1, which is the general sustainability disclosures. Um, But SASB is a central component uh, of our disclosures, because that industry-based disclosure is so critical for our primary user base. Investors, creditors, uh, lenders really want that industry-specific understanding um, on the disclosure side. So couldn't agree with you more. And SASB is a great example because it's part of the family.
2: Thank you, Michael. Um, Let me thank uh, all of the participants in this webinar for some excellent questions. Um, I I see one that's of particular interest to me. And then it's the question of um, what's the board's role in the oversight of greenwashing, short and longer term. let me ask. Let me open it to uh, the panelists because we, we really haven't touched on so much the role of the board, which, uh, as we're seeing with a lot of the financial uh, system stress in the last month or so, with with a couple of bank failures, um, the the role of the board uh, is is critical and just um, more examples of why it's so important to have an engaged, um, effective board. Uh, anyone? like to weigh in on the role of the board when it comes to greenwashing? I might say a couple of things, maybe. Uh, I think it depends
4: a bit on uh, board of what. Uh, So if it's the board of a fund, um, I I would be uh, hoping that the board would take, given everything that's been written about this topic, they'd be taking a direct interest in the marketing materials that is being uh, pushed around there. uh uh, the promotion of them as as a possible investment vehicle they would understand it in some significant detail and they would either themselves or through getting some third party to help them get somebody to do a bit of challenge on it and and get them to a point where they think yeah that's okay we're not being misrepresented we're not being represented as having achieved something which nobody in the market is achieving but but we're Pushing our product in a, in an open and trans and, and transparent way, and there's nothing wrong pushing your products. It's only wrong if you if you uh, if you start misrepresenting what it is you've you've done in terms of design of that product. When you look at the point from the point of view of an of an asset manager, particularly a large asset manager, I think there. If you ask yourselves uh, why this greenwashing has occurred. When it has not been intentional fraud, let's say you come back to culture again and again as the as the main issue. And many in many asset management firms, um, there are different parts of the organisation which have different cultural weight, and boards get to assign the weight. To the different elements of their organization and you're you're inevitably going to have a bit of a tug of war within an organization when they face investor demand as they have faced in the recent past and in the end it's for the board to in, in to intrude sufficiently that it sends the right cultural messages right throughout that asset management firm and the same sort of argument could apply in relation to some of the larger rating agencies as well uh, uh to in order to to of so the right people if i can say it this way win those culture wars internally in order to get that organization into a healthy position rather than one where they're covering things up or or or, or just not not explaining exactly to investors what's on offer.
3: Sure. Thank you Martin. Um Bill can I can I just add something to in the role of the board and couldn't uh, agree more with with respect to what Martin said from a corporate perspective again um governance is just so critical to understand for our primary user base and that was one of the reasons we we adopted the i would call it the architecture of tcfd the climate related financial disclosures it's really core content that's what we call it for both our general sustainability disclosures and our climate disclosures that that framework of governance strategy risk metrics and targets and so we have a great deal of focus on on disclosure around the board's role and that governance role we're not being prescriptive but investors our primary users have said unequivocally it came back very strongly through our consultation process that that understanding the governance of companies and how they're identifying and managing these risks and opportunities was really critical. And it even sort of, I think, lends itself to the questions about ecological illiteracy. Um, and that is a broad issue, but there are certain certainly from a primary user base, they wanna know the extent to which the board as a whole and individual directors have the skills and the capacity and the understanding to deal with these issues more broadly. So that is one element of the disclosures you're gonna see from the ISSB is companies needing to disclose the extent to which their directors, the board directors are charged with that oversight, have the appropriate skills and capabilities to deal with these issues. So again, not prescriptive, but it's the information then that our primary users can leverage and can use to make their own evaluations in regards to how they wish uh, to allocate capital
5: you know if I may um one of the issues uh, you know michael you you mentioned um, the issue of literacy in this area and human capital by extension, but well, I would say that there's a lot of that um but also that it's a it's a matter of um just greater focus and analysis. For instance, we are finding that many funds do not disclose that a new fund that is on sustainability matters. It's been actually an old fund that's been repurposed into the, the, which is fine and dandy if you you actually talk about it, right? And disclose to the public and all that. So that is not about literacy. This is about um, having a tighter set of governance and oversight and and the board has 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 a role in 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 there. Um, the other area is is what I think Marty was mentioning rightly, which is the different cast of characters that you need in order to get this. It's not just one part of the investment firm. Um, another area of, of important inconsistency that we're finding is in the area of voting, voting the shares, right? And, and again, this is about bringing the, you know people who are like literally different people in most firms, right? Uh, saying well, now this fund. It has this mandate, and w- that means not only uh, security selection, constructing a portfolio, but also how do you engage with management, how do you vote uh, th- those shares, and all that. And that's th- that's literally a different set of uh, characters in there.
2: Thank you, Andres. Uh, this is so. Several of you have um, you know you used the expression ecological Ill- illiteracy. Let, let me thank um, one of our um, Participants, Lynn Johansson, who's provided some uh, some some really um, thought-provoking questions. Um, she mentioned greenwashing. Um, you know, the root cause of greenwashing is uh, ecological illiteracy. Um, if the focus is, if our focus, is, the official sector response is better sustainability reporting what's What's the opinion of the panelists? will Will this actually help address that root um, you know the, the root cause of greenwashing, which uh, Lynn contends is ecological illiteracy. Are, are there other um, you know I, I talked before about training, the importance of training, capacity building, um, you know are these efforts that are required in addition to better uh, reporting of uh, you know better disclosure? of uh, of green finance and sustainability
4: i can only say yes and that uh, we've done we've been in direct conversation with the issb about their capacity building work we're doing our own capacity building work uh, I, f- I find the the term capacity building i don't think i used it a lot about a year ago but uh, it, it's become a, almost a term of choice at this point uh, we're all trying to get ourselves into a space where we can uh, start to engage with some of these issues um it wasn't too long ago where people were scratching their heads on uh, and perhaps many of them even at cop sessions as to what scope three emissions were you know and and, uh, and um we we've now moved beyond that but we we all have a very long way to go I, I consider myself ecologically uh, illiterate to a point, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I've got a lot to learn, and, and, and I suspect we, we all have to keep at it.
2: Well put, Martin. Uh, and this, again, this plays into the strength of the Toronto Centre, which provides capacity building and training for, uh, for, for, the, for financial sector supervisors. Um, but there, there are uh, investors, um, auditors prepare. I mean, the list is a mile long as to um, you know the training that needs to take place uh, w- when it comes to these issues. I have um, the last question. Um, any views on uh, rating agencies? Um, what should be the, the role of a rating agency in addressing greenwashing, or or should is there a a role?
3: Well, maybe I'll weigh in here um, with the caveat that I provided before that I was involved in that industry. Um, But I mean, ratings agencies, like any other provider of information across the capital markets has a responsibility to ensure that the processes that they have in place to, you know, provide that rating at the end of the day or provide their insights is that methodology is transparent, that that methodology is robust, um, and that they You know um can be held accountable in regard for you know the the information they're putting into the market um so to do that um they need the assistance of you know good quality verifiable standards and those types of things but of course i i mean from my perspective they have the ratings agencies have an important role uh to play and that they're willing to play it um but again around sustainability disclosures you know rating agencies were working in a nice to have environment that their clients thought yeah this was sort of nice to have information and so on but that that's not the case and so you know sometimes the systems that are in place are no longer fit for purpose which is why um you'll see that that most of those ratings agencies are welcoming the idea that that you know, um, there'll be calls for greater regulation because then there's a greater trust in the work that they're doing.
2: Thank you, Michael. Um, friends, I see uh, we have come to um, the uh, the end of uh, this webinar., uh, all it's left for me to do is to thank Michael, Martin, Carol, and Andres uh, for your time uh your expertise and your, your your views on this this quickly evolving topic it's only been you know we're several years into this but in the um you know in terms of risks and risk management and um, risk reporting we are really at the the infancy uh of, of this really interesting and important topic let me thank you again for your time today let me thank uh um the audience and and everyone who uh who joined us for today's uh, webinar Thank you.